We are in Romans chapter 9 tonight. If you got your Bible, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there. Getting a chance to um, look at different terms and words and, and ways of thinking. Romans 9 is one of those passages we come to tonight in the midst of our series, Hope in Dark Places, which is taking place all throughout the month of February. This idea of are there passages in the Bible that sometimes are avoided because we are nervous of what they might mean uh, or sometimes are, can bring despair and discouragement upon believers. Tonight, Romans 9 is a passage that for some is difficulty, it's difficult in wrestling with the question, how much is God in control and how much am I in control? We sometimes have different you know, semantic terms for that. Uh, different terms that are, you know, sort of like buzzwords in the news. Uh, words get invented. Um, they're used a lot. And then 20 years later, they're offensive. And you have to figure out new words to keep cycling around. And so we could use different words in the midst of this um, about what that might mean. But the question of the sovereignty of God, his control, his destining of what is taking place. And so the question gets asked, how much is God in control and how much is, am I in control? Sometimes terms that are used in, in this most common are terms like Calvinism, leaning more towards a sovereignty of God, God's control. Sometimes other words like maybe Arminianism or free will or other, other you know, leanings in that area would be to know human and freedom is, you know, what really is, is more present than, than what God, you know, is controlling. And so I heard a, a story one time of two guys at a seminary who, you know, one of those seminary arguments that you get into about where the sovereignty of God stops and human free will starts. And so one of them classically would be known as a Calvinist who believed that God was completely in control and he was the one who ordained every single thing. And he was way on the end of that spectrum where he was just full-blown, God's in control of everything. The other guy was a big, you know, free will guy. We're the ones that are in control. Well, these guys got in an argument, and it was so bad that it came to blows. You know, they are in a seminary. Most colleges, they fight over girls and stuff like that, but not at seminary. You get in fights about who wrote Hebrews and sovereignty of God versus human free will. And so these guys, it got so bad that they came to blows, and they each had to get called into the office of the dean, and they got a chance to talk afterwards. And try to, you know, sort of get restored with one another and mend uh, what was busted. And they said, uh, you know, hey, man, sorry about all that. And uh, what, what'd you get for a punishment? And um, the, uh, the free will guy said, well, I, I got suspended for a week, you know, for what I did. And he looked back at the guy that was more of a Calvinist and he said, what punishment did you get? And he said, well, he didn't punish me, actually. He said, really? Why is that? He said, well, because I was a Calvinist, I didn't have a choice in the matter. So he figured it wasn't my fault. And... Uh, <laughs> So that's a, that's a bad joke, but maybe it sort of gets us thinking about it tonight, you know, kind of rolling into this. What does it mean for God to be in control? Is he the author ever of uh, things perhaps being not what they should? And what does it mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? Are we saying that then human obligation and free will is out of the mix? I, I think for us to have a biblical understanding of that, we would see both of those things working in union in a mysterious way that only God fully understands. And we're called to childlike faith that doesn't have to solve every single connecting dot. And so I want to look tonight, hopefully, at what I believe the Scripture explicitly teaches and where there's some level of mystery that's left for that as well. My wife and I first met in 2000 at a missions training camp. We were both going overseas for the summer for InterVarsity. I've shared some of that before, but we didn't start dating until four years later. And there's a part of me that looks backwards and says, man, what was wrong with me that I didn't have the guts, you know, to ask her whether she might be interested to, you know, trade email addresses or do whatever you do in the year 2000, you know, back then. Uh, we, neither one of us had cell phones at that point. That's how long ago that was. So it was just, you know, how, how do we figure out how to be in touch? I, I didn't have the guts to do that. And I look back and go, boy, I really messed up. And then at the same time, I look back and I say, well, you know what, Lord? Four years behind when we actually started dating, I had a lot of growing up to do. And if we just started dating then, I probably would have messed it up. And so maybe the Lord in his sovereignty rescued me <laughs> from what that would have looked like. We look backwards at our life and we don't know the full answer to some of those questions, do we? But I think the longer that we live and the longer that we walk with the Lord, don't we find more and more hope in the reality that he's in control of the things that we mess up? 
that for the things that we can't quite get right or otherwise, not that he's the author of confusion or that he ever is involved in something that would not be right, but God is larger than whatever mistakes we make. God is larger and more in control than whatever, you know, misunderstandings and lack of wisdom we might have. And so we look tonight at a passage of Scripture in Romans 9 that, um, that I hope will be encouraging even as we walk through a chapter that isn't always something that's incredibly well known to us. Paul making an argument that we shouldn't try to avoid uh, that is looking at the, um, the context of particularly the nation of Israel. I've got um, some things on your handout here, and I, I made some enemies last week because I missed a blank. And so if, if you've got your sheet from last week or if you've got it at home somewhere, Barabbas is the one that I didn't very clearly give you. And so I get a couple demerits tonight. I've got to stay after late tomorrow. So uh, just, uh, you know, know that that's my punishment. I'm just kidding. But tonight I'm going to try to stick to these blanks and, and make sure you get them. But for the context of Romans 9, I think it's really important. Anytime we come to a passage of Scripture, we've got to remember that that's only a part of a larger you know, body of work that's being said. The book of Romans is multi-chapters. It is one single letter, but what is written in Romans 9 has a connecting point with the eight chapters that came before it and the chapters that are still yet to come. And so Romans 9 has to be understood in that way. I remember teaching through Romans 8, 9, and 10 years ago, and I called it three chapters that can't be separated. Uh, because to truly understand Romans 9, you've got to understand the pieces of what are in Romans 8 and 10 as well. Uh, so we, I think we need to understand it within Paul's message from chapters 8 to 10. Heard a pastor say one time, if I was only going to be left with one chapter out of the entire Bible, it might be Romans 8. You think about the scope of everything in that chapter, about the hope for believers, about the rescue that is in Christ, the future hope that is coming, that chapter begins with saying there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as you come to the end, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons, and the list goes on and on and on, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So you've got this magnificent, hopeful chapter in Romans chapter 8. Life and adoption in Christ, God's everlasting love, future hope. You come to Romans 9, and then following Romans 9 is the chapter, of course, Romans 10, where the topics are of faith. And for those who are without Christ, there's a need to hear, to receive, and to believe the good news. Romans 10 is where we find, and how will they believe in that which they've not heard or him they've not heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them, unless someone preaches to them? This great reality that people have to hear the gospel or receive the gospel in order to be able to respond to it, and uh, that God's sovereignty is not in conflict with the need for people to hear and respond to the gospel. Here's a picture of, uh, I think it's somewhat of an artist's rendering of Rome. If you're in the book of Romans, you can kind of think about some of this uh, you know, old architecture. This will be popping up from time to time. One of the terms you may have heard if you've been in church for a little while or, or somewhere otherwise come in contact with it, sometimes the sovereignty of God is discussed in an old acronym that John Calvin's students came up with. Actually, it was somebody who was trying to make fun of Calvin some years later uh, that came up with a little acronym to help remember his arguments. I just want to walk through these tonight, not necessarily endorsing or not endorsing, but just to say this helps us think through some foundational things for where we come to in the text. And so his argument was basically this, that the Scripture reveals, number one, that there's a total depravity that we have apart from Christ, that humanity is so lost that we don't simply need information where there was once you know, a lack of information, all we need is information, or we need right moral behavior where there's been wrong moral behavior before. No, Calvin said what we need ultimately is to recognize that there's a total depravity that unless God intervenes in our hearts through Christ and brings us to a response, we can't respond to the gospel. Now, depending on, you know, the level of degree, I think that's very good, well-supported in Scripture to say that we are so lost that unless Christ moves in our heart, we can't be saved. You know, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless he's first called. And so there's a way in which when the call of the gospel goes out, remember the two guys on the road to Emmaus? They'd been walking around with Jesus the whole time. 
and he breaks the bread, and you remember what it says? Then their eyes were opened, passive verb. They didn't open their own eyes. God used that to open their eyes. And so that doesn't mean it's absent of what's going on inside the human heart, but it means that God's moving as well in the midst of that. And so we are so totally lost that we don't simply need an education, that we need to go from being dead to being alive. We need conversion. And so total depravity. The second is a term that would be called unconditional election. Now, without getting too hung up on the term election, what's important is the word there, unconditional. That God is not more concerned or really at all concerned about, you know, where you came from, what your family ties are, how much money you make, how this other person in your family is so-and-so and how you're somehow attached in this way or that way. Paul's going to say a lot in Romans 9 to say our credentials don't matter. What matters is whether or not we've trusted in Christ. There's no other metric. It doesn't matter who your grandpa was. It doesn't matter what your tribe is. That God's movement in the human heart, God's call to salvation doesn't have to do with tribes and credentials and family lines. There's an unconditional election. If you're in here tonight and you know Christ, that's because of the greatness of Christ, not the greatness of you. And so election is unconditional in the sense the offer of the gospel, the call of the gospel given to all people. And the third, this is where I depart from Calvin, at least one of the places, was that his students claimed that Calvin would argue for a limited atonement. And what that meant was that God did not cause his son on the cross to pay for anyone's sins who would ultimately not believe. Now, I think there's problems with that besides it not being explicitly taught in Scripture. If someone were to stand before God someday and to say, well, I would have loved to have believed, but Jesus didn't die for my sins. He died for someone else's, but, you know, mine just weren't there. Uh, I, I tend to have problems with that line of thinking. I think that's taking it too far. That's my own personal opinion. But I find nowhere in Scripture that drives us explicitly to thinking uh, that Jesus only um, paid for the sins of those who would, would trust in him, and ultimately there was no offer in that sense for anyone outside of that group. Now, you may disagree with that, and you're welcome to do that. That's my own. We, we leave to some extent here into interpretation. Uh, but that was the third line where um, I remember my grandfather, he would never want to be identified uh, as, as a Calvinist from the you know, line of churches that he came from. That was about the worst thing you could call somebody. <laughs> and so he didn't want to be called that. But uh, I remember him telling me, just sort of leaning over to the side, and he says, I don't want to be called one of those, but I got to tell you, three of them are in there. <laughs> talking, talking about this tulip deal. Limited atonement was not one that he held to. And quite honestly, I think the fourth one as well, irresistible grace, I tend to also take issue with this based on some of the scripture that's given to us. Irresistible grace, as Calvin set it forth, or his, his followers ultimately would set it forth, was to say that when God works through Christ in the human heart, that that grace is so magnificent that he will ultimately bring you to salvation despite whatever failings, whatever best efforts you might have to fight against that, God's work will continue and bring you to salvation. Now, that'll preach, and that sounds really wonderful, and that exalts Christ. The passage that I think of first is Jesus and the triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem, what's often called the triumphal entry, but it doesn't end very triumphantly. Everybody else is celebrating. Jesus is doing something different. Do you remember? He's weeping. And as he gets to Jerusalem, he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, and you know, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and this is what he says, but you were not willing. Now, I believe that when God starts to work on our heart, there is no greater, by any comparison, person or being who could be working on our heart to move us to salvation, and God will inevitably conquer the worst of us to bring us to Christ, not only once and for all in salvation, but I think repeatedly in our life of constantly having to be drawn back to repent and to be sanctified and to be, you know, looking more and more like Christ. However, I think it's very dangerous for us to get to a point to say, well, no matter what I do or no matter what the circumstances that there's, there's no way that I could resist. Because when I look at the Gospels myself, um, I see Jesus seeming to really 
be brought down, but be uh, discouraged at the, the amount of disbelief, the, the unwillingness that people had uh, to receive the truth that was being given to them. Once again, you're free to have your own opinion there. The last one there, this is the third one almost unique, uh, you know, uniformly that Baptists would fall into, perseverance of the saints. That for us as people, we believe that those who have placed faith in Christ, ultimately their faith will be shown to be real, not by being perfect, not by never failing, but that ultimately through a broken road, so to speak, they are going to continue to grow more and more like Christ and God's work is going to continue in them. That he who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so there will be a way in which they will persevere to the end. That's not on your sheet tonight, and so I give you that just as, you know, I see many of you writing that down. That's wonderful, uh, but that hopefully just gives us a little bit of a framework. And I think I talked last week about pendulums, uh, that um, if you've ever been somewhere to see a pendulum, sorry, this is somewhat cut off. I apologize for that. But uh, sometimes some words that are used, hyper-Calvinism, hyper-Arminianism. I've known some hyper-Baptists through the years. Y'all ever known any hyper? <laughs> that doesn't mean people who won't sit down. If you come to Park Place with us on Tuesday, you'll see some hyper people. I'm not sure if they're Calvinistic or Arminian, but, uh, but hyper doesn't mean that. And, and what hyper also doesn't mean, if I was to sit here tonight and talk about a hyper-conservative person, for example, you'd say, well, that's somebody whose political views are more conservative than mine are. <laughs> And so that doesn't mean somebody who's farther along that path than I am. Uh, do you remember last week, if you were here, I had sort of this poorly drawn mountainside with cliffs on either side? Uh, these are sort of two sides of a cliff as well, where there become problems for how we would interpret things. The, the second part of your sheet here has, uh, has got a breakdown somewhat of this. The top point that I've got there, problems arise in our thoughts on God's sovereignty when we fall into one of the following potholes. Now, I think in this area, thankfully, we've got a lot of freedom in this middle ground. It's kind of like end times theology or what's you know, usually called eschatology. If we all had to figure out everything about the end times to get into heaven, you know how hopeless that would be? I haven't met two pastors yet who agree on everything. Every single one of them has got their own unique pieces. You know, every writer, every commentary, there's going to be some unique side to how the end is going to take place, and that's all right. There's mystery there. Likewise, there's a spectrum here where there are folks who lean a little bit more on the God's action versus those who lean perhaps a little bit more on human obligation and what we might call free will, whether we define it one way or another. And there's going to be people sort of in that spectrum. The danger zone is when we begin to fall off one or the either one of these cliffs. On either side, this is how I've defined them here tonight. Number one, one of the potholes to avoid a view of God's sovereignty that makes our own effort, evangelism, prayer, and faith have less meaning than Scripture gives it. A view of God's sovereignty that makes our own effort, evangelism, prayer, and faith have less meaning than Scripture gives it. If you've ever heard uh, condemnations of side on, on, you know, Calvinism or other, whatever term you want to use, sometimes folks would say, well, you're not evangelistic. You wouldn't care about the spread of the gospel if you just believe that God's in control of everything. If you look backwards in American history, actually in, in the first great awakening, especially some of the greatest evangelists that God used were Calvinistic people who believe when we stood up and give the gospel, that that means God's going to be the one at work. It's not up to me to do it. God's going to be the one to respond. Men like George Whitfield and otherwise, that they had a very high view of the sovereignty of God, but they also had a big view of the need for the gospel to give that out. And so I think those things can coexist. But we're in, a, we're in bad shape if our view of God leads us to laziness or it leads us to say there's no meaning. Because if God is so much in control that my prayers don't matter, I've lost meaning. If God is so much in control that my love and compassion for other people doesn't matter, then we've lost the meaning. You, you find explicit teaching again and again in Scripture that our prayers matter. That the need for the gospel to go to other people is, is there and, and evident and constant need that's there. So whatever our view on the sovereignty of God, we can't lose that. And so likewise, on the other side, we can fall into a, a pit. The second point there, a view of human freedom that puts more emphasis on man's action than God's action in, for, to, and through us. 
Because all of a sudden, if we begin to fall off this cliff over here, everything becomes about how great I am, how much I've done, how I'm better than this other person over here, or what I've got to earn all myself that Jesus has already paid for. You know, there's a reason that we sing, he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. That Jesus is the one who's pursued us in this. If we begin to fall so far on leaning on our own action, what will ultimately happen is we'll begin to have a view of God that says, you know what, the cross keeps getting smaller and smaller and I keep getting bigger and bigger and there's a danger zone when we go too far that way. So many of you in here are saying, well, can we ever get to the Bible here tonight, Jonathan? Yes, we can. Romans chapter 9. Now, hopefully, we've got a chance to read this and I'll be able to walk through the rest of the sheet. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to begin with verse 1, and I'm going to try to read this in sections as it's broken down as we're going to try to get through the whole chapter here in the time that we have. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, writes Paul. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Point number one down there below under interpreting Romans 9, you can't accomplish salvation for someone else. You can't accomplish salvation for someone else. I think many, of, many, if not all of us, would know that clinically, but don't we walk through times in our life where we sure wish that we could? For kids, for family members, for friends, for neighbors, we just wish somehow we could make a decision that only they can make. You can't accomplish salvation for someone else. Paul is writing to the Roman church, which is a mix of Gentile and Jewish believers, and as he's writing this, largely to the Gentile world, what he is also speaking into is the reality that the Messiah for the Jewish people has come and the overwhelming majority of the Jewish nation has not accepted him. And so Paul, like Moses after the golden calf incident, remember Moses had the same basically proposition to the Lord to say, God, can you just kill me instead of killing all of them? You know, don't let your mercy or don't, don't let your wrath come down on them. You know, take me instead. Paul's saying the same thing, perhaps in some ways out of the regret and the guilt of knowing that he was one of them for so long, that he was one of the most vehement supporters of all those who were killing the Christians and involved in that, giving, uh, you know, permission, giving assent to what was happening we see in the book of Acts. Paul looks backwards and says, if I could only just be the one not only just to lose my life, but to be even eternally condemned for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my people, I would do it. But he says that, and even in argument, he's making the point, but I know I can't. I can't do it. You know, when we love those who need Christ, it's a reminder to us that we are not enough in and of ourselves to save anyone. Even our words, even our efforts, they, they only go so far without the work of Christ. When we get together and we get a chance to maybe it's go out and share or, or whatever, when you've had times in your life where you've intentionally had time where you're going to go and share, what do we do beforehand? We, we pray, don't we? God, would you go before me? God, would you open hearts? God, would you change minds? God, would you work as only you can? Some of you even begin to pray dangerous prayers at times. God, will you break down my kid because right now he's not going to listen to anything else unless, you know, you make things in a point where he's going to have to look up to you. There's ways that we begin to call on the sovereign action of God, and that's right. And Paul's walking through that as well, saying, you know, God, I recognize I'm not enough to save anyone. And he begins to break down or continue that argument even in um, both to and about the, the Jewish people and, and anyone else who would be uh, outside of the fold uh, of Christ. Verses 6 through 8, let's read those. Paul says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
Point number two, salvation only comes through faith and not credentials. Salvation only comes through faith and not credentials. I, uh, I'm blessed to have two godly parents. I've, I'm blessed, three of them are in heaven now, but to have four godly grandparents. I came from a, a line of people where I hit the lottery in terms of people of faith who instilled things in me uh, that, that made a huge impact in my life. And, and in that, it was still up to me to say, well, what are you going to do with this? There are plenty of times in my life where you come to crossroads where you say, well, do I, am I really going to follow or not? Or am I really going to believe or not? Or am I really going to make that surrender in my life or not? You know, salvation only comes through faith and not credentials. I heard an illustration of a, of a man who was asking another man as he was out doing evangelism. He said, uh, sir, what do you believe? And he said, well, I believe what my church believes. And I said, okay, well, what does your church believe? And he said, well, they believe what I believe. <laughs> so, it's a, the very important question of what do we believe and why and who is our faith and trust in. And apart from Christ, there's no you know, greater hope. Salvation only comes through faith. And so Paul, speaking into a group of people who more than we really understand in our cultural context would have been drawn to say, well, of course I'm part of God's people because I am of the line of Israel. I am descended from so-and-so and so-and-so. We come to those chapters of Scripture where we say, oh my goodness, is the family line ever going to stop? We're just reading begat after begat after begat. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of you are spiritual enough in here to enjoy that, and some of the rest of us, we just say, look, it's hard for me to get through that chapter. We got those family lineages, and you just think, is this going to go on forever? But this idea of everything being wrapped up into who you came from, and Paul's saying to them, don't you recognize that's not where our hope is found? You're not going to be found as righteous because of who you're related to. But this is all about faith. You remember Zacchaeus in Luke 19, I believe it is, where he goes running down the street and climbs up in that tree and Jesus calls him down. For some reason, when we sing that song at our house, Jesus has a deep voice. Zacchaeus, you come down. <laughs> I'm going to your house today. We don't really know... As far as the whole account that's there, it could have all happened at the bottom of the tree, but as soon as Jesus meets Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus says, well, here and now I give back this amount to the poor, and I'm going to give back this to what I've wronged. And then Jesus says this line. He says, today salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of Abraham. Well, if he's a son of Abraham, why is it that salvation's just come today? Because salvation wasn't wrapped up into him being a genealogical son of Abraham. It was wrapped up in him being an extended piece of the promise, him taking hold of the promise that was given to Abraham, and that ultimately was fulfilled in Christ. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 13. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Number three, on, your, on the back of your sheet, if you were getting excited and thought we were done, flip it on the back. We got a ways to go. <laughs> Number three, God sets his plans in motion in his own way. God sets his plans in motion in his own way. And we're told of an instance of two children that are about to be born. And Paul even says explicitly something we already know. Neither one of them had done good or bad. But as they were to be born, it was revealed that the older would serve the younger. And then we come to this phrase that if we're not careful, we can really miss the meaning. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. And there are some that come to this verse and remove it from its context and they say, does that mean that God hated Esau without Esau even having a chance? Well, if you'll read Esau's story, you'll see that's not the case. That God provided blessing for Esau, that Esau and Jacob had to work through some stuff, didn't they? When they meet up again after all those years, what do we see? We see how Esau has left his anger behind and he speaks to Jacob of the graciousness of the Lord in his life. God's, the language here is not meant to point us to, to a reality of hate the way that we would naturally think of that. 
But it's strong language in the same way that Jesus said, any of you who would not hate your family member to follow me, you know, to leave them behind, that you're not truly my disciple, he certainly was not saying we're to hate our family members. This is strong language to say there's been a clear distinction in what has happened. Esau was free to receive the blessing of the Lord. He was not free to walk Jacob's path. And so the election that God had foreordained there was to say, the line will continue through Jacob. But that was not a removing and a condemning of Esau simply in his identity. It was simply saying the path that has been chosen for the nation to continue is going to be found in the younger and not the older. Verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, oh, I'm reading too far. Listen there. But on God who has mercy, the end of verse 16. I think... um, as we think of this idea, you know, number four, this is what it says. God's blessings and mercy are from his graciousness, not from what we deserve. God's blessings and mercy are from his graciousness, not from what we deserve. We will not find an argument to say that we deserved good things and God withheld them. What we will instead find in scripture is that we who deserve punishment and judgment, God has extended mercy to. Now, that doesn't look the same in every one of our lives, does it? Remember when we were going through the stewardship month, one of our passages in our life groups was the the parable of the manager who went out and hired workers. And some of those workers started at 7 a.m., some of them started at 9 and 10 a.m., some of them started at noon, some of them started at 2 and 4. And then at the end of the day, those guys that came to work late, they started getting paid. And the people in the back of the line said, boy, they're getting paid a lot higher rate than I thought we were. When we get up to the front of this line, we're going to make bank. It's going to be amazing. All of a sudden, those people who'd been there since 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 a.m., when they went up, they got the same thing as the others did. They said, wait a minute, you're paying them a whole lot more per hour than you're paying for us. You know, we should be getting a lot more than this. Remember what the owner of the vineyard says? Can I be gracious with my own money? Isn't it my money to give away? Didn't we agree on this rate? And weren't you excited about it early this morning? But now you're upset because I'm also giving it to somebody else. Well, isn't that my choice to be able to do that? What we see in the sovereignty of God is mercy and graciousness that is extended in undeserved ways, and all of us are beneficiaries of the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ, all of us when we've trusted in him. But our path is not going to look the same, and our road is not going to look the same, and our circumstances are not going to look the same. At times, our health is going to be in a tougher place than someone else. At times, our finances aren't going to be in the same place as someone else. But in all of that, if we'll really look, what we'll see is not what we deserve that we were denied, but we'll see the graciousness of God in our life simply looks different than it looks in others' lives at times. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. You see verse 15 quoted there where God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Do you know when that was stated? When Moses came back up the mountain after he'd broken the tablets and the people had all gone into riotous idolatry at the base and made a golden calf for themselves, said, let's worship this God who brought us out of Egypt. And when Moses went back down, Aaron said, I don't know, I just threw some gold in the fire and out popped this calf. (laughs) Lawlessness, idolatry, wickedness. And as Moses is back on top of the mountain, he's saying, God, I know somebody's got to die here. Can you make it me instead of the people? That's when God says, I'm going to have my glory pass in front of you. And I want you to know this about me. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. It's into the context of a people deserving a great punishment that God speaks to Moses about his mercy and his compassion. If we're willing to look at our life through the lens of what God has done, we will see his mercy and compassion. We will never find a justified way that we say, God, you really messed up and didn't give me what I deserved here just because our life might not look like somebody else's or this or that. If we're willing to own the things that are ours or we're willing to say, you know what, if I'm really honest, I I see that God's blessing and mercy, his graciousness uh, are what is shown. Number five, for someone to harden themselves against God, 
they'll often find that he sets himself against them as well. For someone to harden themselves against God, they will often find that he sets himself against them as well. Verses 17 and 18, which I started to read a moment ago, give you a preview of coming attractions. Now we'll read it ourselves. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I was speaking with Pastor Brandon the other day in the hallway, and he mentioned, you know, as he's leading us through Exodus on Sunday mornings, he said, you know, in the book of Exodus, 10 times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and 10 times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That there's a unity there of the fact that as Pharaoh sought to do evil against the people of God, God's withdrawing of his own grace to say, well, if that's the road you want to go down, I'm going to let you do it. And if you want to take things that way, that's the way it's going to be. And for all of the hope in dark places theme of finding grace and goodness and mercy of God that we see verse after verse, page after page, we dare not miss this warning that when we set our sights and our hearts against the Lord, that there is consequence and repercussions to that. And that if, we're, if our uh, stance of our heart is to set ourselves against the Lord, there are ways in which He even if it's simply to bring us to repentance. Even uh, Paul would say in Romans in an earlier chapter, chapter 2, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but sometimes it's got to be that firm kindness, you know, that leads us through. But for those who are opposed, those who are against the Lord, uh, there'll be a way that he sets himself against them as well. There is no benefit to us to set ourselves against uh, our Heavenly Father. You know, one of the things that I, I sort of wanted to break down as a piece of this as well is that sometimes when we start talking about these, you know, concepts too, one thing that's there is there's actually two types of people who don't exist. I'm going to give you, you know, two imaginary people that aren't in the scripture that sometimes as you walk through passages like this, these are the two folks we're thinking about. And I think it's quite clear in scripture these two folks don't exist. Number one, there is not anyone who wants to be saved but is somehow not elect or not part of God's choosing or somehow not there. That person actually doesn't exist. That for someone to be responding to the Lord and reaching out to Him is a sign that God's work is taking place on the inside of them. There is no one who, who we find any indication in Scripture that God would say, sorry, no, that's, you know, you, you can't. You know, we see frightening passages like um, where it talks about Esau finding no room for repentance, though he sought for it with tears, speaking about his early part of his life. That doesn't mean that Esau couldn't repent. It meant that the attitude of his heart was wrong in that repentance, and it wasn't just about trying to work up a good cry. There were other pieces of that and true repentance that had to be there. But there's not a person who wants to be saved but is somehow not elect or not chosen or that avenue is not there for them. The second thing is there's not a person who rejects God but is, you know, elect anyway and dragged kicking and screaming into heaven. I've heard that term before. I don't find any support for that in the Bible. That somehow when we think about election and God's calling and God's, you know, righteous movement in people's hearts that there would be someone who just wants nothing to do with the Lord and it's, well, too bad, I've, I've you know, got you anyway. Now there are people who will fight and kick against the Lord and the Lord's ultimately going to win that battle. And before they take their last breath, God's work in their heart through Christ is going to change their hearts. But there's not the case of someone who is warring against the Lord and somehow ultimately, well, sorry, you're on the list, so that's what's going to happen. I love this verse in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God knows that all people will not and for many who have already lived and passed away, that was not the case with them. But the desire of God's heart given clearly and explicitly to us in Scripture is that all people, in a sense, there is no one who does not have the free offer of the gospel given to them. Whoever, whosoever will uh, come. And, uh, and so when we come to this passage of, of people talking about things like Pharaoh. You think about Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul, where it says there was an evil spirit from the Lord that came upon Saul, that there's this way in which God is dealing with Saul because of his rebellion, because of his continued turning away from the Lord, and God's dealing with him is, is 
uh, difficult from our circumstances. None of us want that kind of circumstance. Thankfully, through Christ, we're on this side of the cross, uh, that there's some ways that we're able to walk through a relationship with the Lord, thankfully differently than some in the Old Testament. But it's never to our benefit to harden ourselves against the Lord. And we'll often find that he sets himself uh, against those who do that as well. There was a movie that was out when I was in college called uh, Coach Carter. If you ever saw that film, it was about a coach in Richmond, California, who took over an inner city basketball program. He was a former uh, player himself, but he just recognized that many in this town, uh, because of gang violence and other things, they might be playing basketball a little while when they're in high school, but the cycle just continues and they can't get out of the projects and they keep living lives that are violent and just leading nowhere. And his desire, even above them being basketball players, was that they become young men who are able to have a future, a career, a hope, you know, get out of the system that they're in. And so he comes in and <laughs> anybody, in, who else has been a teacher in here? Anybody been a teacher before? Public school, private school, it doesn't matter. Yeah, okay, so a few of you. You know, I've got a degree in, uh, in high school education. I, I, I taught in the schools for a little while. You know, all of us that go into teaching, you know, don't wait. When you, when you go into teaching, this is what you think. You're going to walk into a class and the kids are going to sit down. They're going to cross their hands and they're going to look up at you and say, please teach us today. <laughs> That's what we believe. Don't, now, we know that doesn't happen for every other teacher, but when we walk in the classroom, finally, you're one of the cool ones, please teach us today. Well, Coach Carter found out, you know, that wasn't going to be the case. And there was one young man who, as Coach Carter was simply trying to speak to his team, he was being disruptive, he was being ugly, he was, and then it got more and more violent to the point where when he asked the young man to leave, he tried to take a swing at him. And then this great moment happens where <laughs> Coach Carter catches him and moves him over to the little mat that's hanging on the side of the wall, you know, behind the basketball goal. And there's this great line where this kid, speaking through the side of his mouth, says, teachers aren't supposed to touch students. And Coach Carter leans down and said, I'm not your teacher, I'm your coach. <laughs> and the rest of the movie around the heart of this young man has to do with the coach having to deal with him in this way right at the beginning to say, you know what, you're not in control, I am. One of the most important questions of the Christian life for us as well becomes, who's in control? And it's not us. And if we refuse to accept that, there's ways in which we can't move forward until we've grasped that. And so number six, God has a right to do whatever he chooses to do. God has a right to do whatever he chooses to do. Let's read verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? For each one of us, we belong to the potter. That he has made us, and the reason that we draw breath is because he has given us life. And God has a right to do whatever he would do. Now, we can spend a long time in Scripture looking at the graciousness and the mercy and the goodness of God, but sooner or later, you'll find yourself in a circumstance where you say, well, God, why does it have to be this way? And if we're not careful and we miss the fact that God has the right to lead us down whatever path he would lead us, that he's the one in control, he's the one who knows best, if we miss that, we will continue to be frustrated because we're trying to put ourselves in a place where we aren't. And it's only when our heart's able to change and when we're able to see, you know what, God, you're actually our real hope. The text goes on here in just a minute, speaking from the, the book of Hosea, verses 22 through 26, about the hope in Christ and the, and the way that all of this uh, is going to be set forward. I was reading just this morning from another passage in Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, where if the internet will work long enough, it'll come back up here. I know I should know Hosea 6 by heart. I have to apologize. Will you come back? Now, this is what happens when you use technology while you're speaking in front of a lot of people. Oh, well, I'll try to paraphrase it the best I can. Hosea chapter 6, where it says that though he has wounded us, though he's cut us down, and on the second day he'll restore us, and on the third day 
he'll revive us again, that we'll find hope in him, that the third day is ultimately our hope. And we see in the New Testament who ultimately fulfills that, right? That on the third day, he bought for us what we could not bear for ourselves. So the writer of Hosea goes on to say, so let us press on to know him. And that becomes our great hope also. In difficulty, realizing that God's in control, we can press on to know him and to continue to follow him and to find hope in him. And so number seven, in the mystery of God's working, mercy prevails. Verse 22, Paul continuing to give somewhat of a hypothetical here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, before I read on, it's important that as we see this, I don't believe what Paul's saying here is that vessels have been created simply for the point of destructive, destroying them, for wrath to be poured out. That's not what's being mentioned. What is being said is these vessels, in and of their very nature, are worthy of destruction, that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, that all of us deserve destruction and judgment and punishment. That's from our own sin. And so in that comes the rescue of God. Verse 23, but in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they'll be called sons of the living God. I don't know if there's any Jewish folks in here tonight outside of the fold, which I am and most of you would be in here tonight. If we'd have found ourselves in Paul's day going to the temple, they would not have let us in the door. I was reading in the book of Acts earlier this week about Paul being accused of letting someone who was a Gentile go into the door. It was a false accusation, but they took this very seriously. There would have been no bringing us in. But the writer, Hosea, centuries before even Jesus would walk the earth, said, no, in that place where you were said it was not my people, you'll be my people. We're not second-class citizens in Christ. None of us. There won't be social castes and classes and all this kind of thing. There'll be believers. You know, I heard an old joke about in heaven. They were taking around the new folks who had just come in the door. They said, we're going to lead you to different places. And they came to a large room and they saw a large amount of people. And they said, well, here's all the Methodists in this room. And they kept walking. Came to the next room, large group of people. Said, there's all the Presbyterians that are in this room. They went to room after room after room after room. Finally, they came to a room, once again, large group of people. And they said, when we walk by this next room, be as quiet as you possibly can. They said, okay. They tiptoed past. They looked in the door. They kept going. They got to a place where they, were, they could talk at the normal volume, and they said, what in the world was that all about? And the angel said, well, that's actually the room where the Baptists are. We have to be quiet because they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> you know, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And one of these days, there won't be Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians. Not that I'm not thankful to be a Baptist and proud for our history and heritage and, and creeds and beliefs. Not that I'm not. I'm just saying it's gonna, what's going to matter is knowing Christ. Amen. And the rest is going to be gravy. And that's it. In the mystery of God's working, mercy prevails. In the midst of all of this, Paul's making an argument that for some, they can get hung up and say, wow, well, this is a big question. Does God have the right to do with the vessels that he created just what he wants? Absolutely he does. But you know what he does with those vessels? Shows mercy. And the text goes on and on to say that. Don't miss the offer of the gospel. This is the mercy that's been given. And number eight, finally, the gospel is the intersection of responsibility and sovereignty. The gospel is the intersection of responsibility and sovereignty. The last verses of the chapter, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You want to summarize Romans chapter 9. You can summarize it with the last line. That whoever believes in Christ will not be put to shame. You got a picture on the back of your handout of a pulley. I want to close with a quote tonight from R.B. Culper, or excuse me, R.B. Kuyper, who said this when speaking about, about the role of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He said, You know, I like to think of God's sovereignty and human responsibility like two ropes that go through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, His predestination, His chosen, and so on. I also read the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind, but with childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity... I'll see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. And so follow the Lord. Let us press on to know Him, as the writer of Hosea would say. And in that, may we know that He ultimately is the one who has sought and bought us with His redeeming blood. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for a chance to be here tonight. May the cross grow evermore in our mind. We who deserved destruction have been preserved in mercy through Christ. And so, Father, in our life, with whatever questions we have, with whatever things we can't see, may we recognize and know that you are the one ultimately in control. And we thank you, Lord, that it ultimately doesn't depend on us. And, Father, I thank you also that we are not simply a frozen chosen who somehow would say that things don't matter because of the work of Christ in the world and in the universe. And so, Lord, may we be reminded of how important it is to share the gospel with our friends and family members and neighbors and to see how you're the one who does the work and not us. Will you remind us of our need to go before you in prayer and to recognize that Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf? And we thank you, Lord, that the prayers of your people matter. And so, Father, in any way that we would wrestle with the balance of your sovereignty and our action, would you allow us to lean on Christ and to walk with him? We thank you and praise you and all God's people said, Amen. amen.